Adam is pouring some wine. Oh, yes. Oh, can we hear the fizz in there? Yeah. Changing. Cheers. You're listening to Well Made. I'm Stefan Ango, co-founder of Lumi. Today we have a very special double-length episode featuring my very good friend, Adam Lissagor. Adam is the founder of Sandwich Video. It's a company based in Los Angeles that makes videos for all of your favorite websites and technology things. If you've been on the internet in the past four or five years, you have seen something he has made. We talk all about his process for communicating these crazy new ideas around technology, these new products, services, um, need a voice, need a compelling message, and he's the one often behind the scenes making that happen. He's one of the funniest people I know and also happens to be my neighbor. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Can you describe sandwich video for a second, just how you describe it to people? Sure. So the way I would say that accidentally we're sort of a commercial production company slash agency, but it really was born of a need to make videos about technology so that people understood it. Because first and foremost, I'm fascinated by technology and by tools and by new developments in software and hardware and et cetera, et cetera. So... It, it it comes from that same feeling of joy that you might get when you explain when you show off a new gadget to a friend or a relative, you know, and you can you can tell it means something to them because they've never seen it before, or because they didn't know this was possible, and you get to be the one to introduce this new this new level of possibility. Mm-hmm. I just so happened to have you know been a filmmaker by trade. I went to NYU for film school. And so those were the tools of communication that I was always fascinated by. But really, it was just always about a love of technology and getting to, you know, sort of selfishly be the one to, to, to introduce that to people. I think 99% of people listening to this will have seen one of your videos, even so. if they don't know it, know it yeah. um, which is pretty remarkable. When I first met you, I think it was around 2011 or something like that, mm-hmm. and you were already like a rock star to me, <laughs> but Sandwich Video was brand new mm-hmm. at the time. But you had already made a video for Square and for Flipboard and Birdhouse, but uh, maybe people are not as familiar with that one. But but then since then, you've made videos for pretty much everyone from, I mean, every startup that most people have heard of has mm-hmm. been through your hands at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the like the biggest ones that people know about the most? Mm, the one that gets most um, exposure these days is TrueCar, which is a brand that sure. advertises on national TV. We've been working with them for about three years now. Somebody tallied it up at some point using that website, iSpot.tv, which tells you how many times commercials run. Because I'm in the spots as the spokesperson, the amount of airtime that I've personally been on national TV is something nearing a 1,000 hours. Like wow. 1,000 hours on like... You know, during second, pro, uh, yeah, in yeah. thirty-second increments in on shows that largely are watched by sports fans and older people, and uh, usually not my contemporaries, uh, people at gyms. So that's the <laughs> one that I'm probably mo- like I don't know commonly known because it's a very different audience than the right. one that I consider my audience. I think at the time that like the coin video, the, the video we did for coin, 
uh, came out. That was probably the biggest sort of like viral phenomenon. These days, it it's sort of like it's less about virality for me or the exposure, and it's more about just perfecting the actual craft and not really paying so much attention to the distribution or the reception as it used to be. I used to get a really big kick in the in the days that I cared about how many Twitter followers I had and would get really upset if I lost a follower on Tumblr or stuff like that. I wasn't trying to like game my persona or anything like that. It was just like a point of pride and I really just sort of like popularity in school. For some reason, I cared about those metrics. So that extended out into when I started making videos and doing the business, I really cared about how the videos were received. Now I really just care about doing the best work that I can, keeping you know my team productive, working with the best companies, doing the most creative stuff. Um, so it's just like priorities have shifted completely. The other thing is that it's hard to tell, but maybe I would guess half and half are either consumer facing or more business to business products. Like some that come to mind are Airtable or mm-hmm. Zero, which are tools that we use at Lumi right. are great, but they're never going to get like millions of views because the people who really need those products are, it's just much fewer people. As long as those people get sold on the product, that's what matters, right? Oh, absolutely. That's so when when the like you consider the most important metrics, the number one is whether it makes people want to use the thing or buy the thing or download the thing. If we are successful if we can make a potential customer say, Oh wow, I never really knew I needed that or I've been looking for that thing mm-hmm. my whole life, didn't know it was a possibility. That's when we know when that we're doing our job well. What are your personal favorites from the ones that you've done? The ones where you feel like you you accomplished that thing that you were talking about, which is making something that is <laughs> satisfying you on the, all those levels. I always go back to just because it's an easy answer, and like when I when people ask me my favorite movie, I say Harold and Maude, even though I have new favorite movies that I will that I have seen since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. I'll always say the one we made for Warby Parker mm. was was probably my favorite because. It, there's just the confluence of elements that lined up to make this thing that came from me and my friend Noah, who was the guy, the photographer on in the in the commercial, um, the hero of the spot. He and I going out to dinner in Silver Lake, and me coming up with this stupid, wacky idea, and saying, "Oh, this would be amazing. Will you be in it?" And then just Warby Parker being opened, you know, a young company open to taking creative risks, the budget not being large at all, so which makes taking risks easier. And it probably just like, I, it brings me nostalgia for the earlier part of my career, which I don't know if you would agree with me, but nostalgia for an early part of your career is probably a pretty common thing among entrepreneurs. I have the opposite. Really? Yeah, I'm <laughs> always... such a contrarian. That's what I love about <laughs> I, you. <laughs> I'm always thinking, like when we first met, I, I'm, I think, how did Adam think that I should be a person to talk to at all like I, oh, it's just shut your mouth no it's just shocking to me I'm always looking back and I'm I'm like even six months ago I think we were so stupid like what how did we not um how were we not smarter back then I don't know I'm very smarter about business decisions about about everything yeah oh yeah most definitely I mean but there's there's elegance and brilliance in stupidity somehow like na- naivete it's yeah. a, and as for you being worthy of talking to me <laughs> I am a, a fundamentally a very 
insecure and needy person. So and so it helps. <laughs> when <laughs> no, not to, not to degrade the 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 value of your community, you know, like your friendship, which is just like I just said that phrase. So I've uh-huh. I've devalued the value Thank of your you. friendship. No, but if somebody smart and eager and ambitious writes me an email, what am I going to do? Say like no, I don't have time for you. Like, no, you're not worthy of my attention. I think anybody, I don't care how successful or known or busy you are, anybody who gets an email or a communication from somebody who looks up to them on some level and says, hi, I just want to communicate with you. Anybody who doesn't respond to that is a piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. I mean, at least responds to it emotionally and, and feels good about it for a second. Uh, but but I mean maybe eventually some people get to the point where that happens so much that they're just like they have to tune it out. But I guess so. But <laughs> it hasn't for happened. You. It hasn't happened <laughs> no. yet. Okay, no, it hasn't we have happened a long way me. to go. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean the thing is, like I was saying back in 2010, 2011, I first came across you because you were like a guy on the internet on Twitter when Twitter first launched. There were like. There were like a hundred people. <laughs> yeah. Is it? Am I remembering this wrong? But was Twitter the default view? Just seeing everybody's tweets in the world for a little while. Oh God, I wasn't. If it was, then I wasn't on it that early. I was. I was on it early two thousand seven. So by the time I got on it, it would show you. You know what it might have been? It might have shown you tweets from the people you were following, but also the tweets that they saw. Oh, uh, okay, something maybe. like that. Like there was a time I remember when Twitter was just like there would be a message every five minutes or something mm-hmm. and then yeah. <laughs> yeah it wasn't exactly the um the fire yeah. hose that it is now and i and i did a talk uh, recently like end of last year and i showed a you know just part of the evolution of how i started sandwich and everything and i showed a picture of early twitter and it's just it's a like a, the way i describe it is a, it's a warm blanket it just <laughs> i remember those off that awful color scheme of of like teal and or- they had a lot of orange going on for a while. I mean, yeah. the, the like the fail whale. I remember, yeah, <laughs> fail, <laughs> yeah, yeah, teal and orange. Um, and it and it was so ugly, but it felt so good, and it just like it felt like community for the first are you, time. Are you on Mastodon? Oh God, no! That? Claude showed me that Mastodon dot social dot pizza dot ninja. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I'm. I mean, because I was on App.net and I tried to convince all my friends to be on App.net so we could make it a thing, and then people just got mad at me because they were like, "Where's yeah. my forty nine dollars? Are you on Mastodon?" Well, I I don't think you can sign up because it's like being flooded with people who oh, are trying to switch off of Twitter. Great, great. Um, artificial it, <laughs> scarcity. What this, about, we should join the one that all the alt right papers are on. This is automatically going to make this this podcast so anchored in this like one week where people were talking about remember remember peach <laughs> that's true yes peach i remember yeah yeah uh, i miss i miss the era of one week social networks yeah hopefully i mean maybe some maybe this thing will work i don't know but um so you were a guy on twitter that there were so few people that it was like i should follow this guy mm-hmm. <laughs> because he says funny things on there sometimes right and then you you had you look nice today which mm-hmm. was uh, a great podcast that kind of evolved out of that. With, with two guys that I met on Twitter. That were also funny guys on Twitter. Yeah. And and then you started making videos all of a sudden for some of the coolest companies that were coming up at the time. As I mentioned, you know, Square, Flipboard were a couple of them. But it was really cool stuff. And it was clear that right away, I al- always remember the Square one because the opening 
was so integrated into the website. If you can imagine this, like they had a gray website and the intro of the video is you, right, on a couch. I I haven't watched this literally in like four years, so this is all from memory. But it kind of like faded into the website in a way that was maybe it's a little more common now, but Mm. not really. It just... It just was one and one with the website. Somehow. No, you don't actually see. That's interesting that you mentioned that you don't actually see video um, integrated or melded into into, into the, the web and invi- yeah into the web interface very often. So the the graphics and then you move the couch out of the frame and then it, it you go into this like app world. Like it, it was all so seamless and really well thought out and different than anything else. And I didn't know you at the time as a filmmaker it wasn't known that you were in that realm. And in fact, I don't even really know that much about your story in the industry because you spent a few years doing like industry work. Mm -hmm. What happened? Like, was that your full-time job while you were goofing around on Twitter? (laughs) Yeah. What were you doing at the time? Yeah, so I got, I moved, um, after school, I moved back out to LA. I'm from Southern California. I found a job as a PA in visual effects, which I had no experience with whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It happened to be perfect for me because it blended technology and filmmaking in an interesting way. I just It just wasn't a part of my education. And it's a, NYU is a very formal, at least it was back then, a very formal classical film education, arts education. So I came out here and realized there's a whole industry around visual effects, which is beyond, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for it beyond just making dinosaurs. And I learned a lot about it. And I got a job in, at, you know, at, a, at a studio that was making visual effects and um, spent six years there. Wow. Yeah, just... Working on movies. Yeah, working on, on like, movies. What are we working, talking about? <laughs> oh, bad movies, you know, like uh, Fantastic Four, um, Aeon Flux. Term- my first movie credit was Terminator 3. Wow. we were It was NDA at the time. It probably still is, but we had to like digitally shave blemishes (laughs) and weight off of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, wow. Because he was, you know, pushing 60 or whatever on T3. So that was a fascinating look behind the curtain. Truth be told, I was always fascinated by behind the curtain. The idea that there's more going on than meets the eye. There's, There's more behind there. There's more intention than you know about. There's more manipulation. There's just more at play to make you feel the things that you feel. So uh, visual effects turned out to be a kind of a perfect thing for me just because there's so much deception involved and it's usually for artistic, creative, commercial purpose. So I, I became involved in that world for six years. And by the time I was sort of like ready, you know, I was bursting out the seams to do something else, do something greater, or just to do something different. Um, the web was becoming really interesting. Technology was becoming really interesting. The iPhone was just starting to come out. And um, in the same way that as a kid, I learned about that there are people who make movies, there are people who author them, who there's something called a director, there's something called a screenwriter, a director of photography. Uh, As I was getting fascinated by technology, I learned that there were people who are designers and engineers and developers who make the web, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. They are the ones who are authoring the future. To me, they were rock stars, so I idolized them. As soon as I figured out that the web was becoming a, a platform for those people to be, um, to externalize themselves, to be public personas, I started to basically just try everything I could to connect with them. 
So Bert, was Birdhouse the first thing that you worked on in that respect? Um, yeah, after the iPhone SDK launched, um, a friend, a web developer friend and I did Birdhouse and we, we were going to put it on the app store. We knew that we had this, this very small niche audience on Twitter and that we would need to make a video to promote it. So I did the video and. And that was an app that explained the app for people who don't know. Sure. It was a really very niche app for Twitter users to be to be able to do creative writing mm. on Twitter basically. It was basically for people who cared about what they put on Twitter and were, you know, the opposite of that sort of cliched idea that Twitter is for just spewing garbage whatever. It was for people who put a lot of thought and care into their Twitter and wanted to amuse people. So, uh it was an app for for that for that. So you would write drafts and keep them and work on them and that was at a time where people cared about (laughs) that kind of stuff now it's just like yeah the fire hose of whatever yeah stuff i don't even know what people use anymore to to do that kind of thing i mean especially with this new i mean i say new but it's a you know many years old now but the the whole like serialized you know threaded right twitter post which is his own it's a fascinating literary format really you know I don't know what it is that entices me to go and read through a, you know, whatever, 15 to 30 tweet thread. Right. But I always do. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you stopped using Twitter. <laughs> I came back like right after the presidential election just because I needed another source of news besides Facebook. And the, not to get all talk about Twitter cast, but um, the way I use Twitter now is couldn't be more uh, really? you know different from how I used Twitter when when we were all first on it. Yeah, it's just a news source for me. I don't I don't hardly post at all. It's just, and I don't care about what my friends are saying on Twitter. I follow Louise Mensch who's like a prominent conspiracy Russiagate uh <laughs> you know former British parliament member. Okay. Cuz my entire Twitter stream is just Russiagate. Like that's basically all it is. It's just journalists uh and politics talking about how we're gonna have to talk about that later because I I have an actual folder on my desktop that I'm I'm like actually collecting evidence as though I'm gonna crack this case. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean I love it. You have your digital version of the yarn on the on the yeah no it, bulletin board. It, literally, it's happening. I'm I'm tracking the murders. Um, <laughs> there are, yeah, the murders. Like when did we become this country? When did we become this? All right. Um. But okay. So you're this guy on the internet. You start making videos. I'm very intrigued. You're posting on Twitter, and then suddenly, I didn't even know that you were in L.A. because I sort of assumed that everyone that I cared about was in San Francisco. You're like, I'm trying to find office space in Los Angeles. And so I emailed you out of the blue, and I was like, hey, we have a bunch of space over here. Do you want to maybe be in our office? And you came over, and this was at the time we were at the brewery, me and Jesse, just starting Lumi. Mm -hmm. And you're like, it's it's on the fourth floor. Of a (laughs) walk-up. Yeah, I don't want to walk up, and I don't... My equipment, no, never mind. I forget what justification <laughs> I gave to you. It was an awesome space, and you guys especially were awesome. And I would, and I, you know, we formed a friendship out of it. But um, yeah, it, it, I think it was, it was a little preliminary. Well, we me. have something in common, I think, which is a, a sort of baseline laziness that is. <laughs> well, I have the same thing, but it's very valuable in some ways. Where just being 
uneager to change. Con- yeah, you're a, you're a, you conserve energy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The and this I think comes from for me from growing up in France is like the default is no, and then it, you know if someone can convince you, you're willing to say yes, but it, it the default is no. Yeah, I, yeah, interesting. Hmm. So then I don't know what some time passed, and the same idea popped up again, and I don't even remember how, but. We suddenly needed office space, and you needed office space, and so we started looking around. You had just hired your first employee, I think, mm-hmm. JP, who's still with you guys, amazing mm-hmm. friend and director at, at Sandwich, has made many videos now. And somehow you, we went on this search and spent a few months looking and ended up in this building where we still are more than five years later. Yeah. I, yeah. I, it doesn't even compute to me that it's been five years, doesn't it? It's so cr- it's it's ridiculous. So we're we're right in the middle of the arts district, which was like a ghost town, and now it's hipster city. It's like it's, it's transitioned. It's the center is the center of this. It's the Bohemian cultural center. It's of past the city. that now. Yeah. It's stroller town now because <laughs> we've we've like passed the gentrification into actual like it's Portlandia basically. It's it's terrible, and so but at the same time. I don't know. It's it's pretty exciting that our rent hasn't gone up too much. <laughs> yeah, don't say that too loudly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we love our building. We love, I mean, yeah, we shared a duplex for a, a few years. You guys have taken over a few units. I'm in a different place. Lumi had to move down the street to a much bigger warehouse space. But, you know, we're still neighbors, sort of, even though I, like, I feel like I hardly see you. Yeah, because we're both pretty busy. <laughs> and we're, we're on different floors. It's, it's <laughs> like, so far. But we're right here, and, and every so often we get together and we sit on these couches. <laughs> I never sit on that one. You never sit on this one. That's true. And we drink wine and we talk for a few hours. Seven about, hours. Yeah. This is- and we listen, to, we listen to music. We listen to jazz and funk. You're going to have to mix in the soundtrack later yeah but we all I, I always come over here to have the best conversations that i have really oh yeah no like no question about it i love you dearly <laughs> no i'm serious okay. I, and i'm and i do get sentimental i'm prone to, to to sentimentality but good i have another friend who i do a similar thing with except i sit on your side oh, really no it's, i'm not joking it's true i always <laughs> sit on the other side that's weird. I wonder what our conversations would be like if we if we switched sides. Oof, I don't even want to. No, I don't want to know either. <laughs> tradition. Yeah, tradition. It's important. But anyway, that's my, my that's our relationship at this point. I wish that it could happen more frequently. Except now I have two kids. <laughs> One of whom is named Lumi. Yep. How's baby Lumi doing? <laughs> what? <laughs> she's what? amazing. I mean, she's beautiful and happy and and lovely. I, I didn't know that was on my bucket list to have a child named after our company, but I guess I guess there there was I don't know. You tell me what percentage inspiration came from this actress, uh, Lumi Cavazos. Cavazos, yeah, yeah. Well, Roxana, my partner, and I we had a list of baby names. Like it was much much longer with, than the one we had for our son. We when we had our son, we thought baby naming is hard. It's going to be so much easier if we have a girl. And it turns out not to be true because I think picking a name for a girl is somehow so much more loaded. I don't know. There's, hmm. there's, there's a lot of social responsibility at stake. There's a history. There's, so you want to set them up for the right path in life. Not, you know, and obviously I'm being a little bit facetious, but our list of, ba- of girl names was really, really long. Somewhere on that list was Lumi, Roxana's favorite movie 
since I've known her was Bottle Rocket, the Wes Anderson movie. The actress who plays Inez in that movie, the the lead actress, is a Mexican actress named Lumi Cavazos. So we put Lumi on the list, but at the same time, in the back of my mind was always, it's a beautiful name. It's such a pretty name. We can't name our daughter Lumi. That would be so weird. The first time I ever met Roxanne, she she mentioned, is your company named after the actress? And I had never heard of the actress until that moment. Yeah. Um, She's not a well-known actress by any stretch. But, well, maybe in Mexico. I don't know. Maybe. Anyway, so we, so this long, long list of baby names, and then we were undecided on the name, and we had the baby. Roxana had the baby. We're at the hospital that night. The baby is just baby girl, Lissigur. Uh-huh. And Roxana's asleep in her hospital bed, and I'm sitting on the sofa, and I'm looking, and I have the baby in my arms, and I'm just, like, going through the list of, like, there's probably, You're like, miming the iPhone. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I have, you know, Scrolling with my thumb down. and everything. And there's, like, 20 on the on the select. And I'm just, like, looking at her and saying the name and deciding yes or no. And I go down the list, no, no, no. And I get to Lumi, and I say, Lumi. And it just feels right. Wow. And I look at Roxana and I say, Hey, Roxana. And she's sort of like groggy and she like, I think her name is Lumi. She goes, okay. And then, and then I emailed you and Jesse right away. And I, you know, like right away. Really? Yeah, because I, I was committed to this, but I wanted to, to like sort of like run it by you just for a gut check first because I didn't want it to be like... I don't know. I just did. I didn't want it to be bizarre. We were honored. Um, obviously, if our company was named Uber or something like that, <laughs> or if we, if we were that company, uh-huh. you would have not done that. <laughs> no, probably not. You even and no matter like how much Roxana loves the actress, you wouldn't have gone for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is such a beautiful name. You guys have a. You've really hit on a brand. I, it's no wonder that. While your company pivoted to something entirely new, you kept that brand because that brand is is so valuable. Jesse came up with it when she was like fifteen, and it just stuck around. And yeah, we're happy with it. It's so funny it when, when when we tell people her name, we always say, "Oh, what is that? That's interesting. What does that mean?" I mean, you don't have to be like a, a linguist to know that it comes. It's derived from light. Yeah, people ask us that all the time. Although one of the most common things, and I'm sure you've heard it by now, is it means snow in Finnish. Yeah, and a lot yeah. of people, I don't know, for some reason know that more. I mean, may, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me that people would no. recognize that it means snow in Finnish before they would recognize that so many words in the English language use, you know, illuminate, luminous, all yeah. those types of words. I'm fascinated. I don't speak any other languages very well. I took French as a kid, but mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by language like I, I feel like if I did have a second calling or if I did have a you know different career in mind I think that I would go with linguistics really yeah oh wow, that would be cool yeah I'm fascinated by the language especially right now in our in our political culture I'm I'm fascinated by the way that language plays into the our thought patterns I'm, I'm sure I've talked your ear off about it but George Lakoff is a you know, cognitive linguist. We've never. Oh, maybe you've mentioned him. But I, I I don't know his work. He's this Berk, this professor at Berkeley. He's been around since forever. And one of his seminal works was "Don't Think of an Elephant." Mm. And right there in the title, you know, it's this interesting neurolinguistic like challenge. You right. Deal with that. And the he's the one who's like really his ideas are are around framing. And when you're trying to convey ideas. 
you will be more or less successful depending on the frames that you that you communicate them through. So his whole sort of theory is that the right side of the political spectrum is so much better at framing hmm. because these are the same techniques that business people use in marketing and advertising. Is that always true though? I mean, like Obama was able to do it, right? With, with yeah, but he's more of stuff. like he he's what you would call like an intuitive or or it or you know mm-hmm. he's like he's just a brilliant, gifted communicator. Mm-hmm. Regardless, he I don't think he ever studied it. I think he studied law and you know and um, he's just a natural. But a natural all these you're saying that. On the other side of the spectrum, it's 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 a tactic or it's a strategy. It's a tactic, yeah. It's exactly what it is. It's a tactic for getting for for manipulating into people into believing your ideas. Interesting. In America, I mean, I think you know, communism is well known for its propaganda and all that kind of stuff. On the you know, on the other end of the spectrum, on the <laughs> oh, far left definitely. side. Well, I think it's a sort of a it's a rotating circle of yeah political spectrum i don't think anything is like is um absolute i see what you're saying yeah it is a different political ideologies kind of conform to different styles of of communication all over the world so this brings us to one of the topics that i want to talk about which is storytelling and one thing that's interesting about the way you guys operate at sandwich is you're sort of a full service kind of agency because you do the writing for the videos you kind of start oftentimes from a pretty rough place like the 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 companies that you work with who come to you some of them are are bigger more established companies but then some of them are startups who they're just trying to figure out their branding for the very first time Mm -hmm. first like what's the proportion between those two when they come to you how like raw of an idea is it at that point Coming from the companies we work with, yeah, the companies and the and the people, yeah. whether whether it whether it's the company or the idea of what they want to do, uh-huh. the answer has changed. I mean, for the first probably four or five years of being in business, it was probably eighty or more percent companies that, by their own admission, had no idea how to communicate the, their value, and those were fun, easy times to 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 be working with them because. I don't know, to somebody who doesn't know anything about, can't, who can't play a single note on the piano, you sit down and play the simplest melody and their mind is blown. So that, that you know, that's its own sort of benefit of working with smaller, less established companies who've never made a single video in their life because they don't have that set of skills that tells them what works and doesn't well, what doesn't work. They're just going to go straight to a bunch of things that don't work. And all you have to do is step in and say, this is what I see and this is why what you're thinking might not work. So let's try to solve it this way. And based on my expertise and based on my um, portfolio and track record, why don't we try these things? You can trust me if we, if we do this, I would say in the last couple of years, we've been working with bigger companies that um, have their own marketing departments and have their own set of people who come from backgrounds in marketing or advertising or, some of them have made a ton of videos before with other agencies, and so they all, they have the, their own preconceptions. So they bring this history to it, and it makes it it can make it a little bit of a different challenge to convince them that your ideas are worth listening to. That sort of sucks, you know. I mean, it's nice to be in the position of saying of having people believe you on the first try, but it's like this is the business we're in. We're in client services. We have to. Part of the game is if people are going to give you money to perform a service, you have to convince them that it's going to turn out well. 
Well, one thing that has happened over the years is now there is this concept of a sandwich video. Like, it's a thing, and in fact, it's such a thing that you can watch other people do a sandwich video or try to do a, it in sure. your style. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, when people come to you, especially the people who are a little more you know, rough or willing to trust you, what do the initial conversations look like? What questions are you asking them to sort of figure out what you should do with this? Well, it's usually like around what do you want people to come away with? Like what, you know, there's a sort of a set of questions, not an established like concrete set of questions, but you ask what is important to you? What do you think is important to other people? What do you want people to learn when they watch this video? Who's it for? Usually the answer to that question is it's for everybody. Like, let's try to, it's for both sides of the market. You know, it's for everybody at once. And so how do we do that? So the answers to those questions are usually like, you have to just come from a place of authority and intuition. Yeah, it's just, you you speak from experience and and most people that are coming to us as clients, they don't know, they haven't done it as much as we have. So you know, if I ha- if I hire somebody to work, like to build a set of stairs in my house, I've never built a set of stairs, so I'm going to listen to them for what the right measurement of a stair height should be, and I'm just going to trust them. And I'm probably what you know, if I start to see them mess it up a little bit and I start to trip, I'll be like, oh, that was not money well spent. But for the most part, you just trust the people who have operated with a certain bit, amount of expertise. You, you just get to the bottom of what's valuable about the product and you try to convey that value to people who have never experienced the product. If, that, if there is a core mission to what we do, that's what it is. It's identify what the value is and it might not be the thing that the client knows is valuable, but you identify the value, you pay attention to your own feelings when that value is identified, you try to reproduce those feelings for other people using the linear two-dimensional uh format of video you know which is you know it's 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 its own set of challenges to uh, reproduce a, an interactive multi-dimensional experience using 2d video you, you you say identify the value mm-hmm. so an example that comes to mind with the like the square one is like one that you've talked about in the past where one of the things that was so cool about it if people can kind of back up to that period of time when there were still headphone jacks on phones, right. <laughs> but it was like the moment where you plug in the little square reader in there and it's uh-huh. just like, oh, and the video would show you, here's how you do that. Yeah. And, uh, that was like an important moment in the whole experience. Absolutely. And what is like, I consider that like texture, you know, in, in terms of u- user experience, any touch point like that where something happens because you did a thing, I consider that a textural or a haptic experience. What's mind-blowing about that is that one thing is supposed to happen when you plug an eighth-inch mini jack into a, a mini um, headphone jack fo- thing, yeah. plug into a jack is you're supposed to be able to hear audio, and that's pretty much it. So we showed what happens when you take this dongle that has the same eighth-inch j- uh, plug and put it into that hole, and then something happens on screen, and then suddenly it's a credit card reader. There is something unequivocally mind-blowing about that in 2009. Well, and the designers at Square knew that. They they knew that because they designed that whole experience. They designed the way the screen changes when that happens. But somehow, 
explaining that and reminding people and showing people for the first time that that's a cool thing is your mm-hmm. job somehow. Well, you know, it's not often that our clients think experientially like that because there are whole there are part there are people on their team that are designing those experiences, but the people sort of further closer to the top don't necessarily think about the experiences that make that like the detailed experiences that make the product what it is, which is going to be most consumers' first experience engaging with their product. They're thinking about other bigger stuff like, is this going to be a new model for economic growth or whatever? So um, it's really important to just remind those people, like, no, it's the little things that people are going to notice the first time. It's going to be, like, as good as you felt the first time that you saw that happen and you said, yeah, that's good, we want to remind, we want to show people that. Do you feel like that has become harder to do over time as you've done so many videos and seen so many apps and seen so many products? Is it, are you still able to get like in the like naive, like beginner's mindset with it? Yeah. If I'm, yes, I am. If I'm able to like speak to my own gift, like a, like in a, <laughs> in, in an objective way. That's it. That's it, is that I'm sort of basically a stupid person and I get to come <laughs> to experiences fresh every single time. Like if I were if I were if I were uh tasked with communicating the value of Lumi as it is right now, I mean like a lot of this is based on how you sh- you did you demoed it for me the first time when mm. it blew my mind the first time. Okay. But being able to interactively model and price out your experience with the packaged goods that are eventually going to be responsible for conveying your, you know, Mm -hmm. conveying as a vessel the stuff that you make to somebody who's paid you money for it and have that being a seamless and interactive experience. I think the most complimentary thing you can say about a piece of technology is that it feels like what the future will be. Mm. That That's what I would say about, you know, to somebody who's never been uh, exposed to Lumi before, that's what I would say, is like this is what it should be like to design packaging not that you maybe have ever had to do it before and then i might if they're like okay what's new about that and then i would say well usually i would say what you said usually you have to get on a phone on the phone with a a person you have to fax them an order form they meanwhile they take three weeks to go price it out they have to do some calculations that are largely based on nothing (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah but most of the clients that you work with have a similar story uh, because most of them are either software or technology driven. It's that same story, which is these other guys have been doing it the same way for 50 yeah. years. This is how we think it should be in the future. Yeah. Isn't, and isn't that great? Like that's where technology is and probably will be for hopefully for a long time is let's identify the things that are problematic, that, are, that, are, that cause friction in our everyday life that we that probably, if we thought about it hard enough, shouldn't be causing friction. And let's remove that friction. Mm. You know, unfortunately, in the tech industry in the last few years, it's created this culture of, like, solving problems that don't really need to be solved because everybody wants to solve problems. But still, like, the, the just the spirit behind that of let's make friction go away as much as possible so that the world can be a little bit better and we can get down to the, you know... And one of the largest cliches in marketing or advertising, get to the important stuff. You know, get to get to what you really care about. <laughs> okay, which is running along the beach with your children and your. So partner. so I so I like what you're saying so far. You you look at here are some of the clever things that you've done with your product already that 
are worth highlighting. Mm -hmm. The other piece that I think is really noteworthy about a prototypical sandwich video, and maybe you've kind of broadened it over time, but it's the voice of the way you speak to the person watching Mm -hmm. and make it somehow entertaining and friendly. Um, There is a sort of through line to that, but also you try to adapt it somewhat to the client. And how did that, and that's a lot of that is writing, right? And finding the right actors. Oh yeah, most definitely. And yeah, it's the writing, the casting and the directing. How does, so how does, can you explain a little bit more about that process? How does the right, where does the writing even start? Do you, do you guys, who does it? Uh Do you guys just write something? Like, do they provide you a list of features that you're supposed to run through? Like, what do you, how does that even work? Well, yeah, a lot of times we get a brief from the client and it's there. Sometimes they're these really like, you know, overly wordy, overly complicated, overly designed documents that have too much information. And um, we, how do you how do you pare that down? What do you do to cut the crap out? What What is like the Yeah, <laughs> that's um, like putting the, the, the fresh pair of eyes on so, somehow. I don't know. So usually, yeah, we always have to decide what's important and. So we have a creative team, and our, our head writer is, is is Josh Allen, who I met on Twitter, funny enough. Yeah. He was one of the very first freelancers I ever worked with back in the day, you know, back in the day, a long time ago on a Groupon spot, because we were Twitter friends. Um, And he's just, like, brilliantly funny and really gets the voice of, um, you know, as a, as a character, Josh is a lot like me, which is he's not overly confident. He doesn't go around the world thinking that you should listen to what he has to say. He chooses his words very wisely because uh, when he wants to communicate something to you, he doesn't enjoy that (laughs) experience. And um, And so there's always this element of, you know, here's some information, do with it what you will, kind of a, kind of a tone which I would say he's responsible for as much as I am, that we both kind of come to advertising. He has a background in advertising, but like more traditional. It's the opposite of the car salesman. It's like not, they're not trying, it's like reluctantly trying to sell you something. Right, yeah, reluctant is absolutely it. And that comes across as an authenticity because like, Believe me, I wouldn't be talking to you right now unless I had something to say. I'd be over there, like, minding my own business, which is the opposite of salesmanship because salesmanship gets in your face, tries to manipulate you into believing something that is maybe probably not true, right? Using tricks that they don't think that you know are Mm -hmm. tricks. (laughs) And that's what's so blatantly offensive about stuff like, I don't know, since it's culturally like in the zeitgeist right now, this Pepsi ad that everybody's talking right. about with Kylie Jenner. Is it Kylie or Kendall? I don't I know. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Who cares? But this Pepsi ad, like it's, it's, it's just the perfect and most, but that's why people are so offended by it. Not because it's politically offensive, but it's offensive that anyone would think that they could get away with that bullshit. Right. Because it is so blatantly applying ideals of political discourse into the you know for capitalistic purposes it's so blatant and stupid but that but that just to talk about that for a second that is a very refined piece of marketing even however bad it is it's 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 like millions of dollars were spent trying Mm -hmm. to create that thing 
Whereas there's a the the to me the used car salesman person is just like the guy who's just the slick talking uh-huh. person who's trying to wow you into buying something. Right, but it's all based on the same principles, yeah. which is that I'm going to say things to you and I'm going to assume that you don't know that I'm lying. Right, like there, t- I I always bring this out, and I wish I knew the source of this quote, but. The idea that there are two kinds of people in the world, uh, people who want you to know what they believe and people who don't want you to know what they believe. Mm. It's sort of rare that one type of person can get along well with the other type of person because when there's deception involved, there's like a sort of a tacit agreement that we're going to deceive each other. But when there's authenticity involved in the, 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 the removal of deception, then we can come to each other with an understanding that we're there's not going to be some there's, we're not going to take advantage of each other's proclivities and and like a need to believe in things so i think that w- what the way we approach it is like we don't want to try to convince you you of something that you're not going to believe already but isn't that a meta way to actually convince someone to believe what you're saying <laughs> Well, yes, but in but in <laughs> you're still trying to sell something. At the end of the day, you want your 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 clip, your video to actually yeah convince someone that this is it a de- pretty good thing. Yeah, I mean it. De- it depends on your your definition of sell because sell can be you know be defined as a like a mon- like a transactional thing, but sell can be defined as um, present a rhetorical argument and have you receive it as though it were relatively believable. And not all things that are sold are bad. You know, a lot of them are actually pretty good. Yeah, the, a principle of sandwiches, we try to sell things that are good, and we try to sell them in ways that people believe they are good. Yeah, that's a thing that I've always been jealous of. And to be honest, part of the design of like what we do at Limi as a business is inspired by the way that you guys operate, which I don't know if it's still true but for the longest time it was just all inbound it's just people coming to you saying i've got this thing can you make a video for me mm-hmm. i mean it would be interesting to know if that's changed over time if you've ever like tried to go out and grab people and say i want to make no, a video for we, you no we we still don't i think we're just about to though because we're i mean it can't last forever it's 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 such a privileged position to be in it's oh it's so incredibly yeah. pri- pri- privileged i don't know whether it will dry up at some point or whether it won't but you have the option to say no and you've taken that option many times yeah mostly mostly we t- we say no but it's just that it's based on this really you know easy rule of business which is that if you do something well people will ask you to do it again <laughs> you know and yeah. it's just it's it, when 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 people come you know, knock on my door, write me an email and say, what advice do you have for, I just graduated such and such. It's the answer is do good work where people can see it and other people will ask you to do that again. You know, at first you'll charge probably next to no money. Maybe you'll even lose money. The next time you'll charge what you should be charging. And then the time after that, you'll charge a little bit more. Where sandwiches right now, like I think we there's there's opportunities to do different types of work than what we that just what comes in the door. So the way the industry is set up, there we we will probably have to go out there and reach for it a little bit. So people come to you with with the concept. You you start writing. What happens when the client says like we really need to talk about this feature? We need to make sure this gets fit in there somehow. Right. And then suddenly you've got this laundry list and you can't cover everything. Like what is how do you talk to them in that situation and help them guide them through what is important, what's not important? 
because they're always going to think, you know, obviously the client's always right. They uh-huh. they know they know what they're trying to do in their mind, but that's yeah. it's, it's not possible to fit everything into a you know two minute clip. Well, you know, I don't know. The format sort of has evolved in the last few years, and I think that as more and more people do, do this style of work, it becomes clear what works and what doesn't. And so when we work with these clients that do have a marketing department, do have people that have not only done some of this work but seen a ton of it, the rules, the language of the format sort of changes. So it becomes more clear to everybody that you can't say too much in a short period of time. So it's probably the the question you're asking was more applicable like five years ago mm. than it is now. That's good for you. No, it's great. I mean, it, and it's not something that I've actually ever thought about before, but... Yeah, the clients are sort of becoming more savvy as we are. And as the And as, and as you the have this is. roster of videos you've made hundreds, right, at this point. Um Yeah, a few hundred. People do, do people come to you and say like do one of those for us or here's the ones that we like. It's like a menu at this point. Yeah, again, it was like something that used to happen more because there was a more limited menu. There were like five entrees on the menu. Mhm. Now there are just like there are probably thirty entrees. It's a cheesecake factory mem- menu, <laughs> and so to, there's thirty sandwiches. Yeah, yeah right. Um, no, there's just like there's like shrimp scampi, and right. there's like a ch- chicken salad, and there's like a lot of different things. And the luxury of that is that when a client comes to us and says, "Here's our product. It's in this space. What do you think is the right solution?" we can go put together a very like a custom portfolio of like five to seven pieces of work that we've done that are all sort of maybe fit that bill like with slight variations. You know, one thing that is interesting about your videos and this is another thing that has changed over time is like who, what's the face of apps? Who, who, who gets to speak about that? And like, it's, it tends to skew a little younger, but there's also, you know, and, and how do you choose that? How do you find people who are good at explaining this type of product? You just have to have a strong sense of people really. Like, so it has to be some, somebody that you yourself like, you know, not, and this is the mistake. This is the mistake that is often made in commercials is that, the people that end up in commercials that you see on TV, they're just, they're actors and they're being, they're showing up on the day and they're not making a ton of money and they're, this is their job and they're, they're not, they don't feel like real people. They feel a little bit like they, they're put a little too put together, a little too stylized, a little, a little too, too, too everything. And therefore the illusion just saw it. So sort of crumbles. Well, we have to talk about the fact that you've been in so many of the uh-huh. videos. Was it early on just a necessity because you didn't have the budget to hire actors? Or is <laughs> yeah. it just you felt like you could nail the material that you wrote or you weren't comfortable yet directing people? Or what What, what was it? And have you been able to like get, get over that? Yeah, the in the very, very beginning, it was just I wasn't comfortable with the process of hiring an actor, of directing an actor. So I just stood in by proxy and said the thing about the thing. And then, like, very quickly, it was the weirdest thing. Weirdest and probably best thing to happen to, to my career is that founders started asking me to be in the really? video. Yeah. And I remember the, the first time it happened was after Square when Flipboard got in touch. And Gloria, the, the director of marketing that I'd been dealing with there, when, when Flipboard was a stealth company with 10 people, and she got in touch and I was walking my dog, I was at the dog park with my dog 
And she, and I said, and I was thinking, we got to cast somebody that's really classy, you know, just like very sophisticated because your app is very sophisticated. And she was like, well, we, we were sort of hoping that you would do it. Uh-huh. And I was, I was just like, Gloria, that's a terrible, terrible idea and a very bad mistake. But it was clear that they had had discussions on their side about it. And same thing with Jawbone. Like at Jawbone, the the founder of Jawbone wanted me to be the one to like introduce the jam box. And I thought, and then I put my foot down there. I was like, no, <laughs> this is way too cool a thing for me to to be the the guy. So and I lucked out and I cast and I cast this yeah. really cool actor. He's too cool. He's, He's too cool. cool. He's just like in a very specific, unique kind of cool. And that was the first time I was comfortable with like this just this idea of unconventional casting. Like let's show people pe- show people people that they don't usually see on video or on real human beings, not you know, not actors, not people who are too beautiful for the screen. Yeah, <laughs> you can't relate to on any number of levels. Absolutely, and it's not like I was I didn't come up with this idea. There was a there's a casting director here in L.A. named Allison Jones, I believe. She casts for Judd Apatow. She cast Freaks and Geeks. Hmm. Freaks and Geeks was one of those like paradigm shifting works of television that showed people that you can build a whole show and a whole universe around actors that don't feel like, you know, Brady Bunch style characters. She's got a gift for finding those people, needle in a haystack, that nobody else is maybe looking at. And the lucky thing to happen to our industry is is that language is developed as we become more accustomed to putting those oddballs, those unique real people on camera, that becomes the valued commodity. You know, that becomes what people actually look for almost by default. The people who are not looking for those people are now at the like the lower rungs of the industry. My dad always used to say that's what makes it a, a horse race is is like that they're you know, sometimes you feel bad because there are so many people doing what you do, but really, really poorly. And you're like, this is what makes it easy to get ahead in, in life. A lot of our clients just, they, they send us, they, they, they send us the brief. They send that we talk on the phone. They say, these are the last things that we made. These are our last commercials. And we look at them and they're just pure garbage. And you're like, wait a second, you paid people to maybe the (laughs) same amount of money you're going to pay us to do that for you. Are you shitting me? And like, we can give you so much more because those people are bad at their jobs and, like, you should know that. Don't you know that? And what's a little bit disheartening about that is, is that they're not going to know that you, that you did a good job. I don't know. It's just that's what makes it a horse do you, race. Do you, ha- do you find yourself having to, to vouch or convince the client about a certain casting decision ever? Oh, all, all the time. Yeah, we're shooting something tomorrow and we had to go to bat. Like, I had to step in with a... Uh, a, a client that is more like an older school model of v, of venture backed startup client, because mostly we're these days we're sort of working with well funded e commerce clients. That's most of our client base these days. But this is more of like an old school. Hey, here's a cool idea. Let's raise some money for it. Let's you know let, let's try to um, revise or evolve the model of a thing that's already been being done. And those are startup guys, you know, those true and through and through. Those are not like marketing experts. Those are startup guys. So the thing about startup people that are in technology is they're going to, by default, they're going to go to to the thing that they, like the easy answer. Hmm. They're going to go to the easy answer first. The thing that they've seen 
I don't know. You know how like kids have a certain idea of what it is to be an adult and it's based on a very limited uh-huh. range of experience. Sure. They've seen bigger companies do certain things. So they want to be like the big boys. So they're going to try and do something like that. Right. Exactly. So the default answer for those types of clients is maybe like go with the like the startup looking guy who's like mm. got a very specific wardrobe and a very specific haircut. And when we auditioned a bunch of people, the person who was just by far the best on camera was, you know, like I won't mince words, he was an ethnicity that wasn't white. Mm-hmm. He was not of a body type that was you would normally see on a TV commercial. But he had something so authentic and believable about him that if I were a startup founder, I would clamor to have that guy representing my company. Also, I think he was perfect for the brand, like the particular solution of the problem that they're solving. You know, I remember when we get that email that says, some of us over here have a little bit of, you know, like hesitation around the guy that you're recommending. And that's when I get to send an email and say, listen, I know you're having your hesitations, but trust me on this. This guy is gold. We see a lot of actors. And it says it's a responsibility. It's a social responsibility to put people on camera that you wouldn't normally see on camera. And I say a social responsibility because there's a political element to it. Because it's up to people who are making, you know, making content that you see, you know, video content where a lot of people are going to see it. It's up to those people to make these decisions that are going to hopefully have an impact on representation. Well, set aside, that's a really important point, but has a casting choice in general ever backfired where you're like, we got to go with this guy. We got to go with this lady, whoever it is. And then it didn't work at all. And you're like, oh. Well, not very, not very, not very often. A, co- okay. a couple of times. And it's, it's usually weird things. Um, that casting director, Allison Jones, that I mentioned, she, she had, I read an article about her. I forget where it was. But when she's, when she's auditioning actors or just people, when she's looking at people, she has this phrase that she uses in her lexicon which is, can they talk? Obviously, that means more than can they just verbalize words, but do they sound like a person? When you know, right. do they Are they good on camera? It's almost like saying photogenic, but mm-hmm. it's more to it than For that. For voice. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, some, uh, you know, occasionally we've made casting decisions based on somebody who, somebody's sound, look oh. a little bit too, too much without, you know, and disregarding whether there was difficulty with how they sound, whether they could talk. And then when we're on set, we realize, or sometimes the client picks that person. And then we're like, okay, we can make it work. And then we show up and we start shooting. It's very clear that that person cannot talk. Mm. Like musicality is really important to an actor. You know, using your voice as an instrument is such a cliche, but it has tonality and it has cadence, it has rhythm, it has all of these things. And if you don't have an ear for that kind of thing, then you're not going to be successful as an actor. The thing is we work with a lot of actors that are not, union level top-notch actors there are still so many people that are highly valuable as actors that are not like that career level you know there's a lot of like noise in the signal Mm -hmm. what i was going to say is people don't appreciate how many people are involved in making video and i've been involved in being on on camera for a couple of these things and it's always amazing to see how many people are behind the camera doing the makeup getting everything organized planning the schedule you know, doing the photography, all that. There's 20, 30, 50 people on set. And I feel like 
the thing that is the job of the director in that situation is to have conviction, like to be the person who's like, this is right. This is what we have to do right now. And like <laughs> most, like I feel like if I was in that position, at least 75% of the time, I'd just be like, you're on a roller coaster and there's only one way and you're just like, we just got to do it right now. <laughs> and that that is the thing that takes a lot of guts. Like it's so hard to just be the person who always has conviction. And so yeah. it comes back to like the casting decision, the shot decision, yeah. the lighting, everything. And he's just like, this is right. How does that even work oh, for you? It's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not for, it's not anymore. Once you get, like doing something like stand up, the bigger it gets, the more pressure there is. Well, yeah, there's that. And so the, like the really big ones when you're beyond your comfort zone, it starts to get, you start to get that some of that terror again, but you do it enough times and you're desensitized to the experience. And then it's just, you remove that layer of doubt that gets in the way that says, everybody's looking at me. Everybody's questioning my decisions. No, they're actually there so that you can make a decision. And the best thing that you can do is make a decision, even if it's the wrong one. Yeah. You just like, exactly like you said, you have to have conviction. It's it's not an easy thing to learn, but you learn it. It's like doing your job as like chairman of a company, but doing it in real time in front of sixty people. What happens? But okay, what happens in those moments where you realize you have to cut bait? Because there are those moments where you're just like, okay, we've been trying to do this thing and it's not going to work. Uh We need to. It it just it means everybody's going to have to be here for another five hours extra, and we need to change the whole thing. Uh This was a bad idea. We have to. We have to change. Like that has to happen. You know, once in a while, right? Mm -hmm. Or or the shot needs to be different. We need to. You guys spent all this time lighting it perfectly, but it's wrong. We need to change it and how do you decide that that like how do you have the guts to do that in that moment right well there's like is it called yield in manufacturing sure i mean like weight like the the ratio of 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 stuff that's just going to get discarded yeah Yeah. well we get used to that in production too you know that you're going to be shooting a certain amount of stuff that's never going to make it into the edit the decision making processes in those impasses are not that extreme that's not five hours like five hours would be a disaster time and money is budgeted out to the level of like, you know, minutes, you know. So we know how how many minutes every setup or shot is supposed to take before you move on to the next one. You're always behind schedule. And your producers know monetarily how much money every minute of overtime is going to cost. Like there's this phrase flag on the play. Flag on I've the never heard that yeah. before. <laughs> what does that mean? If flag on the play means everybody stop what you're doing, we're changing the plan, we're going to do something else. Wow. Um, And it's kind of fun when that happens. And the reason why it's fun is because it doesn't feel like failure. It feels like success. It feels like, oh, this is fucked up. We're not going to be able to fix it. Let's do something else. Let's let's creatively problem solve. That is like creative success. Mm. And when you're working with good people from the top down, you're working with people who know that that's success. That's what success sounds like to say, Let's stop what we're doing right now. Let's figure it out using our brains and our talent and let's do something else. And that's how we're going to get through this day. And the dumbest thing you can possibly do and like, you know, student filmmaking level of operations is I don't know what's wrong with this. So let's just keep trying it over and over and over again, you know, as the aphorism goes. It's funny to me, one of the like the life lessons that comes out of maturity is realizing that change is good. One of the best things you can do on a scope of life is realize that there's 
some could use changing and, and, and doing something about it. And that, that's what production is. Production is knowing when things are going right, but mostly knowing when things are going wrong and then fixing them. Yeah, and, and having the team, like you said, around you of people who are at least experienced enough to recognize that that's a good thing when you're, right. you're changing the plan. Yeah, and oftentimes what you're, when you're a noob, you spend most of your shoot day thinking everyone around you is just wants to go home or they want, they want to move on to the next thing, but mm-hmm. you know it's not quite right yet. So you have to just kind of push through that. You have to push through to the point where you feel like everybody around you is actually going to be happy when you get it right, and then it's time to move on. By the end of the day, when there's that culmination of things going right, everybody feels good about having shown up at 5.30 in the morning, you know, making their day rate and going back to work the next day. It just feels good to have done a bunch of things right in series. Yeah, one of the most relieving feelings in either doing a creative project or running a business is like, when you've known for a little while something is not going right and you just are like tricking yourself into trying to make it work, whether like, you know, sometimes it means like having to fire someone or something like that. That's a really hard decision that you have to make and you finally just like do it and you realize like I should have done this probably, you know, uh, two hours ago or two months ago or whatever it is in that specific a lot of time that you have. There's no harder thing than that, is there, as a business owner? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's rough because you always are. I mean, most people that I know are coming at it with the best intentions. Yeah, they want to make it work. Yeah, and then eventually something is not working, and you always prolong it more than it it needed to. Well, because we don't come to it from an operational standpoint. We come to it hiring somebody as a humanitarian effort. (laughs) You know, otherwise we would just get robots or figure out how to make the people who work for us already do more work. You know, but. It's a humanitarian effort to bring somebody into your team that you expect you will get a lot from, but they'll get a lot from you as well. And then to have that go badly and to have to re- undo that situation just feels. But so most of rigid. the time, the other person on the other side is relieved to to because <laughs> they're thinking this is not going well either. So, so you know, most of the time it, it actually works out. From your lips to God's ears. I don't know. Wish me luck. <laughs> so another aspect that I want to talk about real quick is actually tools. Because I think one of the things that I've always been so impressed by, and I think it's why people who are in the business of making, you know, well-thought-out products continue to come to you guys, is... I remember seeing JP working like late nights, like recreating iOS inside of like, I don't know, After Effects or whatever. I don't know what you guys use these days, but like yeah, still all these minute interactions where it's like, I'm going to take a video of my phone to see in slow-mo how the pop-up comes up because I need to recreate that at a higher resolution. Totally, yeah. Um, And so there's just an attention to detail there on stuff that is where... People will see it and feel it, but they don't know, they can't pinpoint what it really is. Right. And it comes from people on your team just having inherent, like, deep care about that. So there's that aspect. And that has led you guys to create some some tools, some of which are out there, but most of which are, like, even basic things like having, like, the green screen app that you guys created yeah. for your own production purposes where you can green screen. Uh, I'm trying to describe what it is, but basically, like, put a green screen on your phone 
that has some markers that helps you like comp in later yeah. the iPhone screen. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, Tim Karras, a visual effects genius that, I, that I've been friends with for a long time through Twitter, he developed that app when he realized, oh, there's a need there. Sandwich keeps doing this thing where if they need to shoot a screen and then replace it later, they'll just load a, gr- a frame of green, like a picture of the color green on there. And then tell the actors not to touch the screen because that'll launch the UI Chrome. Right. And Tim was like, you know, he just sent me the the ad hoc build of it. And I was so grateful for this tool to exist. Now there are a lot of them on the App Store. Tim and I had been talking a long time about, <laughs> about um, putting it on the App Store so that people, other people could have it. And then we got obsessed. Mostly I got obsessed about making a video about this thing using... Oh. You know, using like shots of all of the different green screens that we'd replaced in our in, and I apologize to Tim, but we never got around to making the video, so we never got around to making it, putting it on the app store. But yeah, we use tools, and we we don't um, and build tools. That, well, that that's the thing that's interesting to me. You know, build your own frameworks, build your own sets of things that that allow you to do the job. The casting app that you've been working sure, on, sure, those types sure. of things, like. That, that kind of allow you to do the thing that you're doing. Yeah, because we're tech people and that's fun. Um, we don't do that enough to make it like an institution, but we've done it. And and I think like more to your point early, you know, at the beginning of that, which is like an obsession with the details about the software or about the tech, that's the stuff that's like just makes you feel it. That's where the care comes from. That's you know. Well, the people that I hang out with, and and that's probably one of the things that we bonded sure. about early on, is that all the people. I mean, maybe not all, but most of the people on your team are just nerds about that stuff. Yeah, and and they care about that stuff. And so to them, it would be wrong. It would literally <laughs> hurt them to not make it look right. Sure. Um, whereas a lot of other people just don't care, and they'll just you know phone it in because they don't you know. Well, they just don't, they don't notice. They don't don't notice. They don't pay attention. They don't notice. They don't know why this thing feels different from this thing or that it does feel different. But that's one of the reasons when I was working in visual effects where I became fascinated with these people uh, who do care about that stuff is, oh, wow, I have a close friend named Raza who lives here in L.A. as a screenwriter, and he was the first person that way before the iPhone or anything like that he and I used to bond over like the details of interface stuff way more. He's like, he knows every font and every exist in existence. And he's not even a design professional. He just cares about that stuff. You know, when you find somebody who cares about the same things that you do, there's something special about that. Right. So that's one of the things that if things are going well, we get to have in common at, at, at my company is that we all sort of care about the same stuff. Yeah. Can I, can I ask you a question just to change? Yeah. Uh, the music on your podcast. Uh huh. Where does it come from? I think it's just the most perfect thing. Well, you well the music is very. Which one are you talking about? This those tones. Oh, we made them just for the podcast. I think it just Who came. Made them? I'm embarrassed to say that I don't uh, actually know the name. Caitlin found this person who. I just had the very like vaguest direction, which was just it should be like. Doom doom sounds and minimal, yeah, and sort and of Japanese sounding. And that I, was not I my knew, direction, but it but was. But I know, I know it comes from you because it's almost like the sound of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we've been doing this show. I don't know if you watched it at all. Shipping yeah. things, yeah, I watched. It. Uh, which is 
it's the first time, and this is gonna, I'm gonna sound like the biggest asshole ever, but it's, I don't have anything to do with it, which is so rare at Lumi because I'm such a horrible micromanager when it comes to anything creative coming out of Lumi. Yeah. And I guess I w- I'm sort of more of a producer on it. Caitlin actually directs them. So she's she's a genius. She's been doing she writes the blog, does the, she should get a lot of credit for what Lumi looks and feels like these days. And Jesse obviously is a natural on camera. Um my only prompt to them is try more weird stuff. Like we're talking about boxes and envelopes and and stuff like that and it's in theory, the most boring thing you can imagine. It's cardboard, it's paper, it's like... Watching Jesse can never be boring. Right, but if you watch the show, we're always trying to make the something funny or weird about the cameras, about the props, about, you know, what's happening and, and try to bring something interesting and creative to it. And there's also a lot of sound effects related to that. It's like, um, if you can engage all the senses, you should somehow. Yeah. And it's so well done. I love it. We're, I only watched the first episode. I think we're. I think we need you to come over and give us more advice. Like we're just we're just doing whatever we can. I think we don't that would be what, the worst idea. We don't know what we're doing. I think we could use some tips. No, no. I went to my my sister teaches at Cal Poly. She teaches journalism, and they were doing. Um, she did a unit on video, like making like little sort of documentaries. And so I went and spoke to her a couple of her classes and just taught, gave them some tips and tricks. Uh-huh. Just like very basic filmmaking 101 stuff. And how did it go? I felt okay about it, but it wasn't like a warm and receptive light. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, they're millennials. And are they or are they younger than that? Well, I guess they're like, they're 18 to 21 years old. So is that? I don't think they're, gen, I think they're Gen, gen Z. Z. Yeah. Oh, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. There, we're down to, there's a Gen Alpha now. The, 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 Doesn't your, play my kids? Your kids are Gen Alpha. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I, there's no official name, but that's one of the names that they call well, it. Well, I'm, I'm glad it started again because it was sounding a little bit fatal, fatalistic that Gen Z was the, <laughs> it was like the. Yeah, like we're, we, we're we had, rebooting. Yeah, good. Thank God. I think it started with Gen X, so we didn't have that many letters to go with. I right, yeah. but Gen Gen X was meant to be like a placeholder, like a wild card, like X. You don't know. It's like <laughs> X Files is the unknown, right? Right. And then somebody got clever and said, "Okay, what comes after X alphabetical? Gen Y." All right. Well, that's and then not that, helpful. That, that then, happened again. We we had the Y two K bug, and and it was just like, "Oh crap, what's going to happen?" Yeah, yeah. And then it's all Alpha. over. No, but it's not over. And then. I guess Gen Z makes sense, except that it's a little bit doomsday. So I'm glad we're starting over. I think we, it's, it's time to lose the alphabet. We're just so we're going to go to the Greek alphabet now. I guess so. I mean, Gen because beta. before it was you know the Great Generation, the Lost Generation. If right. you if you the look, baby boomers, the, yeah. The what came next after baby boomers? The Gen X, I think. Yeah, I guess so. Right or no? No, there there was one in between. The yeah, the like the 60s. me generation. I don't know. Isn't that the baby boomers? Uh, yeah, probably. I, actually, I love the Wikipedia articles about the about generations. This is something I don't really talk about that much, but it's one of the most useful things that I've ever been exposed to in my whole education. Was I had a whole um, course about generations 
um, taught by one of the professors at Art Center. And she really, she's like a design research expert and talked about how so much of design is around the premise of different age groups. You know, there's young people, there's, you know, middle-aged people, there's, you know, there's the people who are in their 20s, there's retired people. But in fact, it's more useful to think of it as generations and think about what those that particular cohort was dealing with at a certain period of time in their life mm-hmm. and how that informs their trajectory. Yes, of course, there are limitations that you have as a human being when mm-hmm. you're a baby versus when you're, you know, at different periods of your life, you have different constraints on your bodily like limitations. Yeah. But there's actually so much more that comes from what was life like yeah, at context. those formative periods of time. Right, yeah, we we tend to think of generations as being uh self-defined in a vacuum, which is completely nonsense. Yeah. Um if you think about things like the alt-right and this whole generation of young white disaffected men who are looking for <laughs> I mean actually you and I have talked about mm-hmm. this in one of our last conversations who are looking for um reasons to find fault with the status quo interpretation of 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 what they see as uh, the right way to be politically, the correct way to be politically. It's useful to remember that they they were sort of raised in a school system that happened after the previous generations had had this awakening about incorrect ways of being to each other. Mm-hmm. Let me see if I can rephrase this in a more useful way. When I was a kid, we grew up having it be okay to use certain expressions towards each other that were very violent and gross expressions, and it was just okay. And then there was a shift where it made sense, like, oh. And you can almost, like, define it by, for my generation in particular, you can define it by the existence of something like the AIDS epidemic. Hmm. There was a time when I was bef- when I was born, nobody knew what AIDS was, and then suddenly we had a lot of people die, and then suddenly safe sex became a thing that was in the in the lexicon, and then suddenly it became part of our education, part of our curriculum, our social curriculum, our educational curriculum, to deal with these problems that we ourselves had seen the existence of. While these current generations of younger people have maybe not seen the same evidence that we saw in the past. And it makes it all, so much more sense to think of it like that in that they've not seen the evidence of that, the, the horrific humanitarian disasters that occurred, evidence of racism and evidence of bigotry and evidence of political strife and all these things. They just, they've been raised in an era where it was sort of like de facto to... Um, already be educated against those kinds of things that in their times of of youthful rebellion of course they're going mm. to rebel against the things that, that the rules that are already established that are telling them not to behave a certain way that makes a lot more sense when you think of it like that i don't know whether it's appropriate to get that level of political on no this, it, on it, it makes sense because what you're what you're saying is, is exactly to my broader point which is try and have empathy for the moment in history yeah. that they are confronting uh, and, and, and do the Venn diagram of that with 
what phase in their life are they at? Absolutely. And it comes and it goes to um any like sort of base of support for any political movement is like the American spirit is one of rebellion. Mm-hmm. And so people who support a cause that you may you and I maybe not don't yeah. support, they are still at heart, they're rebels. And 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 um it's really interesting to think about people that we disagree with politically as being part of a rebellion. Because well, we think of we think of ourselves as the rebels. The the nonconformists, the political left, we're supposed to be the ones that are rebelling, raging against the machine. Yeah. But it's actually an act of rebellion to support something that you're being told is the status quo. I, I was asking friends and people a few weeks ago or a month ago or something what they think every American agrees on or what are fundamental American principles. And I, and one that came up was that, was that Americans are more willing than most other countries, cultures, and I can attest to this being someone who grew up in France, mm-hmm. more willing to throw out the old and like bring in something new. Yeah. I think that's a very rare trait that is very unique to American culture and is very valuable um, but obviously, it, it, you know, it's it causes its problems. It, it has its own problems as well. <laughs> but yeah, but I like that. I think it's an important part. That's why I live here, and I, I can imagine being an entrepreneur in France because it's the opposite. There, it's you know the the question that is asked of any French entrepreneur is why, like why bother? Why are you doing this? Which is so counterproductive. <laughs> why do you think you have this great idea? If it's so great, why didn't somebody else have it before? You're, what are you doing? <laughs> and whereas here, it's like, why not? Why why not go and do something new and crazy? Like, Absolutely. let's try it. Yeah, you know, let's see if it works. Yeah, just do it. Is the model? Is the model <laughs> sponsored the by model. Nike? Yeah, exactly. I feel like we generally want to wind down, but mm-hmm. you have been doing political work recently. Yeah. Like, um, I, I, well, the first time I heard about that, I thought it made so much sense because I think that your approach to creating stories about technology could easily be brought to other areas, and politics is one where it's so needed because I think that, I think everybody agrees with it, whatever your party of choice is that politics is broken that the way pe- that, that the people who are supposed to represent you are not doing a good job or aren't are the right people don't rise to the top um, and I think and I think we live in a time now where the internet and these like technologies have allowed for ideally the right people to cut through the noise, Mm -hmm. but they need the tools to be able to communicate. And a lot of these people are not, they have the same problem as the startup founder who is like looking at the way it's been done before and saying like, if I want to be a big time candidate, I need to do the same thing that people have been doing this whole time. But I'm emphatically nodding to everything you're saying. But there's, but there's another way, which is like, how do you communicate with empathy? How do you, as the creator of video, find same thing as the square reader when you plug it in. What is the thing that happens when you look at this candidate who's <laughs> saying something? What happens when you talk to them and you plug them in? What is it that, that, that makes you inspired by them or connect you to them? And how do you tell that on screen? Absolutely. And you know, what is that thing that happens when you watch uh, Barack Obama speak to a lot of people? And you feel like this person is communicating with intelligence and grace 
and believes the right things, believes the things that I believe are true about humanity. And so, I, yeah, I, I started a new, a new company, a new sort of wing of sandwich that's, you know, disconnected from sandwich, but sort of under the same umbrella It's called special projects. And it's basically one of the tenets is, uh, is that democracy itself is a platform. Hmm. I feel the same way right now about democracy and its preservation as an institution as I did about the Mac OS in the 90s. <laughs> okay. Right? What does that mean? It means that those of us who were like the adopters of the Mac way of life in the 90s and knew that it was better, we felt very strongly about it. And we wanted to preserve that and we wanted to not only preserve it, but communicate its value to other people and preserve it. And then we knew that Good things would happen if more people are on this platform. Well, right now it feels like democracy is in danger. And it feels like democracy as, as a platform is in danger. Institutions of government are the hardware, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, for the platform. And uh, and candidates, pe- politicians are the software. And policy is the software. And the way that the Mac thrived was when the software got better. Mm. We have to open up the platform of democracy for better software. And I believe that one of the the, the 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 tenets of this new company, Special Projects, is to make communication, make quote-unquote marketing, content, whatever, um, that espouses this value, that there's good software out there for democracy and good apps. And, right. and, we, and, it's, and democracy is going to be safer and stronger when more people use them and more, more people believe that they know that they exist and believe that they're the right apps to use. So that's why I started the company. I started the company really because I thought, you know, there are a lot of ideas that people have forgotten. Things like just, you know, we're sort of being manipulated by people for the wrong reasons. There there are people in power that we don't know that they have the all the power. There are people with all the wealth in the, in in the world that you know, poor people are fighting each other because they don't have awareness of the fact that most of the strings are and levers are being pulled by people with all of the wealth. All this stuff is information that I wish people sort of had at their had access to. And so I thought I need to do something using my skills. I haven't been very politically active in my adult life. I'm certainly not an activist, even though I come from a family of activists. I need to do something using the skills and resources that I have to try to communicate some of this information. And then I. I went to this political meeting here in LA and they were talking about local politics, local and state politics being this huge battleground that Democrats largely forgot about because we had this guy Obama in office and we thought everything was cool. And I realized that not only is there an opportunity to make content, like educational content in the same way that Sandwich does, conveying these ideas, there's also a a way of doing essentially what you and I talked about as casting before, which is putting the right people on camera and Mm. making them feel like true humans because humans are the way that we connect with each other. Well, I I think that's to some extent always been true about politics is that ultimately people vote for the person that they, they're like, is this person a good human being? That's that's who they vote for. (laughs) The problem is it's so hard to convey that and we've created this infrastructure of very, I don't know, the the level of media that has been built up, you know, all these institutional media 
I don't even know like how to the describe media it. ecosystem around politics is just very very like base and, and, and politics poor. is so complicated. There's so many laws you know that you need to <laughs> understand or grasp in order to make the right choice. That ultimately, where people end up is, do they trust this human being to make the right decisions mm-hmm. in the moment? Um, our judgment of whether this person is a good or bad human being is only informed by these like high stakes debates and these like really polished, very like crafted things. And you don't actually get to know this human being in a real way. And it feels like the internet was like designed to help you do that. And yet it seems like the opposite is happening. Everything seems more polished than ever and less real than ever. True. And so what I was excited about when I saw the, the first video that you did was just this is a a, a real human being this mm-hmm. this this woman who's running what what is her what what's her name and where was she running in Minnesota yeah Lori Warner she was running for state house in Minnesota um, special election the first special election after the presidential election because her own election uh, her race for state house got thrown out she was this really cool woman a DFL candidate that. Uh, Democrat farm and labor, former labor organizer, husband was a labor organizer. And when I went to this meeting with this group here in LA, we, they were just identifying these races coming up and these are these candidates. And like, we can do things like help them make, do phone banking, or we Mm -hmm. can design a pamphlet for them or what, all these things. And I thought, holy crap, that's it. You know, like, um, just a, a light bulb went off. Like this is the product and this is the P this is in Political marketing is terrible, right? And what these people need help with more than anything, in terms in terms of things that I can help with, is knowing how, what story to tell and knowing how to, you know, do make the right decisions to present themselves well on 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 the medium of video. So I went, you know, I took a crew and I went and tried to help her, and 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 that was a really life changing experience. And then I got back to L.A. There was an election for Congress yesterday in my district in the 34th. And a friend of mine had hipped me to the, one of the candidates, Maria Cabildo, just an incredible, incredible woman that was um, by far an underdog, had was way, way, way underfunded mm-hmm. than any of the other 23 candidates. And she had done all this incredible work in her community had and, and was just so overly competent at everything she did uh it's been a career doing urban development and city planning to build her community in Boyle Heights and which is just so good that you know like it just was the perfect opportunity to help out help her tell her story and there's going to be more there's going to be a ton more you know there's there are so many elections coming up and the unfortunately you know she came in third place of the uh of the of the uh the race yesterday and only the top two get to go to the runoff for the general election. But she made such a strong showing, I couldn't be more proud to have helped out. And so it's not just, so it's candidates like that. It's um, activist organizations. I, did, I shot one for an a organization called Knock Every Door, mm. an organization started by Bernie um, grassroots organizers, people who led organiz, you know, organizing for Bernie Sanders. Their core belief is that if you knock on people's doors and have conversations, then it's the only way through this mess. <laughs> you know, fighting with each other is not going to solve the problem. The only way to solve the problem is to go and have conversations. 
And so they built an organization based on getting people to sign up to go and knock on doors and have good conversations with other people. So I went and made a video for them. This is in post right now. It's an opportunity I have having built a company and an infrastructure with Sandwich to go and do some of these what you consider side projects, but it's the stuff that I feel like is really at this point in time really meaningful. So I'm this I'm not I'm not I'm not stopping. Friday we're doing something here. I want to tell you tell you about it super secret. When one of the saddest realizations I ever had, I think, was in college where I was like, who would ever want to be president? Or and, and I think that that, you know, whether it's president or any almost any political position, you just sort of feel like the people who would want to do that are either completely egomaniacal or stupid or crazy or there's something wrong with them if that's the career path that they've chosen. But in reality, you know, especially at the lower levels, it's, it's such a selfless thing to do and, and, and such a, an amazing choice to like pursue politics and to choose to represent people and to like fight for issues of the people who, you know, you're representing. And, and when that, all, all of that gets turned into this like spectacle, it's just sort of like, gross and so we need to bring it back to the human element we need to bring it back to these are real human beings here are their beliefs here are their opinions you know you may you know you may agree with this person more than that person and that's who you're going to vote for but like let's look at those people and what they represent Mm -hmm. as opposed to this like whole 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 show and and crazy i don't even know how to describe it but it's just gone way out of hand in terms of the like show of it as opposed to the reality of, of the human beings behind it and the, and trying to connect. And and so I'm excited about it. I hope that, Mm -hmm. you know, for the people who were disappointed with the election and we had a little bit of a conversation about that with the guys from cotton bureau a few episodes ago, you know, I think there's an awareness and a sort of maybe not a reaction, but a sort of um, feeling that, this is actually important and that you know people should care about this and so it's good to see like you know creative people like you kind of feel that responsibility and say like okay I, there's some stuff that i have to offer here that I, I can contribute to that it's super fun to see how many people are now becoming more politically aware than ever before people engaged and educated about politics because they're actually doing the work to go and find the information more than ever before and the rea- and the reality is it's so nuanced. That's yeah. the thing that like that it, you know it, it always gets pushed to the extremes. But the reality is, every single person that you ask will have a nuanced viewpoint of their opinion of everything about the situation, and yeah. that never gets represented. Yeah. Well, it depends on what kind of media you consume. Hopefully, I don't know. People do a little bit more digging. You know, people know are becoming so much more media literate and able to set, separate the wheat from the chaff. Um, it's just this this consciousness of it, this consciousness where we have been collectively unconscious for so long, and we have allowed these systems to to calcify. We're the respons- we're the responsible party for this, right? Like I, like I was talking about before, people who want you to believe you know what they believe, and people who don't know what you want. But we've allowed this system that exists by virtue of withholding what they believe. Mm. We're dealing with an administration that knows that the only way for it to exist is by withholding information. 
which is madness. I think if you asked any American 20 years ago whether that was an okay state of affairs, you probably would have lot, heard a lot of like, no, that's probably not okay. We should do something about that. Well, we've, we're the ones who have allowed that state of affairs to exist. And I guess we can only hope that the pendulum crashes up against that side and falls so hard towards the other direction that it opens up a whole new era of transparency. And I'm trying to skate to that puck, really. I'm trying to skate to, to that new era where people want to see what a person is really about, not just the 8x10 glossy version of themselves. The the reluctant salesman approach is the same thing that you know I'm looking for out of any politician as well. I'm looking for reluctant politicians. I'm looking for people who are doing it because they have to, not because like mm-hmm. they want to be there out of some sort of psychological problem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm curious and excited about that. I think um, we've only like scratched the surface of like stuff that I want to talk to you about. So. This is also already like a double length episode of the podcast. <laughs> so I think, that. no, no, I would keep going. But I think that the, the there's diminishing returns in terms of people who are going to make it all the way down here with us. So yeah. I want to have you back soon and and get into some other topics as well. But I really, really appreciate you taking the time to oh, do I this. I loved doing it. We just did what we normally do except recorded it this time. Except, you know, we would keep going for another couple of hours normally <laughs> yeah. and <laughs> and have a couple more bottles of, of beverages. Um, but so, you know, if someone wants a video, they should go to Sandwich Video. Sure. What is that the URL? What's the URL these days? Well, it's sandwichvideo.com. We also have sandwich.co because... All the projects, the side projects. Yeah, yeah, but there's nothing really at sandwich.co. It just redirects to sandwich video. Go to either place. Twitter, that's not a thing anymore for you. You've been doing that, like ask uh, ask questions to the sandwich. Well, chat. I did it. I did it one time. Uh, that was fun. Yeah, it was kind of fun. I've done. I did a Reddit ask. Ask me anything. Ask me anything. One yeah. time that was madness because they hadn't really quite figured out their system yet. Yeah, I actually loved. I love the opportunity to engage and like to answer questions and have conversations and stuff, especially in a non-threatening, you know, like non-threatening sort of digital medium, electronic medium. So they can find you at Adam Lissagor now because you just changed the Twitter. I did. I got a little bit. I feel like I grew past Lonely Sandwich a little bit. So now it's the at Adam Lissagor Twitter. So go, go there and we'll put all those links in the show notes if you have questions for Adam. But thank you. It's been a long time coming. I feel like I've been looking forward to this for, for years, Me literally. Too. So Me too. I'm glad that um, you were able to come on. And let next time we'll talk about all the, the crazy stuff. Oh, totally. We, we kept it pretty serious. <laughs> Yo, I can't wait to know what the crazy stuff is. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review could be just a sentence long by going to iTunes and searching for well-made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks and see you next time.